Welcome to Breaking the Net, a podcast that covers the latest in politics, entertainment, and business. The world is more connected than ever, and keeping up with the news can be overwhelming. I'm your host, Mehdi Mahil, and throughout this podcast, I'll be doing my best to cut through the noise and break down what's happening in the world right now with the help of some amazing guests. Here's the show. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Breaking the Net after a short but fulfilling Thanksgiving break. Today, we'll be discussing the news developments in the global pandemic and the Omicron variant of the COVID-19 virus, the verdict in the trial of the killers of Ahmad Arbery, why support for gun control in the U.S. is at its lowest point yet, and the Supreme Court case that may scrap a century of gun control legislation, the latest development in the congressional investigation to the January 6th riots, And what a fight about Islamophobia in Congress tells us about the state of Muslim-American relations today. Joining me today all the way from Atlanta, Georgia, is staff reporter for the Wall Street Journal, Cameron McWhirter. Cam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Cam, what can you tell our listeners about yourself? Uh, Well, I'm a reporter of of almost 11 years now at the Wall Street Journal. I cover the South, uh, the Southeastern United States with some colleagues here. And uh, I cover all kinds of things from politics to hurricanes to uh, mass shootings to you name it. That, and that's what I like about it. I like that. You know, it's, it's exciting and interesting. And uh, I like working for the journal uh, where they really worship facts on the news side. So that's what we do all the time. Thanks. Facts are primary. I, I think they're important. I mean, Cam, if you had to choose from the last 11 years, what would be one story that you're super, super duper proud of uh, that you, you keep coming back to when, 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 you know, if people ask you, what is the best story you've written in the past 10 years? And you're like, well, I've written the story about blank. What would your blank be? Oh, geez, I don't know. I mean, I, I, think, um, I think a lot of our coverage about mass shootings in America have been really hard to do, but have been really um, powerful stuff. I think we've done some pretty great stories regarding politics. I covered all of the uh, uh, craziness in Georgia last fall with the, um, with the election where uh, Trump lost the state of Georgia and, uh, but refused to accept that loss and then proceeded to, uh, um, race all kind of dust over that. And then uh, we had a, two Senate races up simultaneously that January, and uh, the Democrats won both of those. It was very tumultuous and remains uh, politically fraught down here, but it was really exciting to cover it, to see a real transition. Nice. And we will be talking about the kerfuffle in Georgia later. Um, but I wanted to it was start more than a kerfuffle. Oh, it's it more was, than a kerfuffle. It was like an earthquake. Yeah. More like a political earthquake. I mean, I think Washington's full of those these days. Yes. But I wanted to start with a more pressing concern, at least a more immediate concern for most of us. So last week, scientists and infectious disease specialists in South Africa, which has some of the world's most sophisticated disease tracking systems, detected the emergence of a new COVID-19 variant, currently named Omicron. The World Health Organization has designated Omicron as a variant of concern, suggesting that it carries higher risks than other strains of the virus. 
The discovery of Omicron, which has an unusual number of mutations, raised alarm around the world on fears that it is more easily transmissible and may have the ability to evade the body's immune responses, including those bolstered by the vaccines. The virus has so far been found in travelers in Europe, the Middle East, and Hong Kong, and is likely present elsewhere as well. In response, several countries, including the United States, imposed travel restrictions on travelers coming from countries in Southern Africa with the stated aim of slowing down the spread of the virus. The CDC also updated its COVID-19 booster shot recommendations to include everyone over the age of 18. And some scientists and global health experts have criticized the imposition of the travel bans, saying it seemingly penalized South Africa for being transparent and that there is insufficient data on the migrant variant to determine what danger, if any, it poses to people. So, Cam, what can you tell us about this new variant and the initial response to it? You know, in a statement on Monday, President Biden said Omicron was a cause of concern and not a cause for panic. But the American global response still seemed like relatively scattershotted two years into the pandemic, uh, you know, even with South Africa's timely warning. Well, what can you tell us about what is happening right now, what we know about the virus? Well, I mean, I I don't know if you've seen, but uh, they just identified the first case in the United States today in, uh, uh, in California. So the person had traveled recently to South Africa and has just returned um, and is now being quarantined in in California. There's probably other cases as well. I mean, for, you know, obviously every reporter in the world is covering this story in some way or another. And we certainly have been covering it uh, in the Southeast where it's really been... um, there's a whole million ranges of issues and all and, and Omicron as it as it will probably spread uh, is going to exacerbate political fault lines where we have a lot of debate and battles over mask mandates and vaccination rates. Uh, I don't know what uh, the vaccine the vaccination rates up in the northeastern United States are much higher than they are down here. I think Georgia is just under 50% of uh, eligible people are vaccinated, which is uh, shockingly low considering everybody can get a shot pretty easily. Um, And so we're all, uh, uh, the impact on the economy has been a a perpetual struggle. The Southern states, uh, which are predominantly Republican dominated in their legislators and with, uh, in their governors uh, has, has been much more lenient in terms of opening up business to to operate and that has meant that our the business community has been much uh has 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 suffered has suffered through all this much better than the up in the north in the north a lot of businesses are are really getting pounded over um covid restrictions and much less so down here but we also you know our we have people hospitals have been overwhelmed here so it's a it's a constant political roiling i think there is probably uh we'll have to see of course but there's probably some overreaction certainly in the stock market there was a massive overreaction when omicron emerged but i think that the uh i think we're going to see that uh this type uh, this uh perpetual occurrence is going to become the norm of our lives now this is how it's going to be and how the world quickly identifies a new variant and response to it is going to define our future and uh, how successful that future is going to be. 
I want to go back to a point you just made, you know, that there are concerns with, on the economic effects of the virus. So you're absolutely correct. The stock market slid when news of the variant uh, came out. And the Fed chair, Jerome Powell, warned that the economic woos and supply chain problems may persist if people are scared to go back to work. Uh, how much of the response do you think is dictated by public health considerations versus political considerations, especially as President Biden made it explicit? You know, he ruled out the possibility that we would go back to the type of lockdowns we had earlier in 2020. Do you think he's like somewhat, do you think the administration or like the U.S. government as a whole and different state governments are are kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place? You know, do we do the right yeah, the thing? The government, the federal government, whether it was under Trump or under uh, now under uh, President Biden, uh, has been in, between a rock and a hard place on this whole thing. And every state government has been uh, scrambling to try to figure out how to respond to this. And it's been interesting to see, you know, early on in the pandemic, state governments were just in free fall and were, you know, had visions of billion dollar deficits and that didn't materialize. They actually, some of them have pretty massive surpluses now. Yes. Uh, but, you know, no one really knows. It, it's all going to be about whether there's a variant that, that breaks through and then what, and then how does the world, how quickly does the world respond? Um, certainly there's a lot of debate over uh, in the United States about the lockdowns, whether they were a mistake. Uh, certainly that falls along political lines. There's definitely... Uh, the general Republican view was that lockdowns were too excessive. The general view of most Democratic politicians is that they were necessary. That's for the story. This political divide out. is going to like rule what what kind of response we expect to see from the government. Absolutely, I mean the political divide in this country is is the story and and touches on every issue that um, this country faces and. <laughs> Certainly COVID uh, is chief among them. Yeah, I mean, we're, I mean, it's, it's defined how states are reacting to, to the federal government. It's defined how local governments and state governments interact. I mean, you know, we have a lot of um, Republican dominated state legislators in the Southeast, but we have a lot of uh, democratically dominated big cities, including Atlanta, where I live. And they're constantly at war over issues of mask mandates, vaccination requirements, and things like that. So, and and those are starting to end up in court. They're ending up in political battles. You're going to see them in school board elections across the country, which are fiercely political uh, uh, events. So that's going to be, um, yeah. Um, you know, a, a lot of states that did not want to impose lockdowns are challenging uh, President Biden's vaccine mandate, um, saying that it's a, an issue of freedom, uh, not an issue of public health safety. Obviously, the Biden administration is pushing back, saying that the federal government has the authority to impose these mandates. Let me let's let's indulge in a little bit of, of doom saying here, right? Say the worst case scenario, uh, well, what public health scientists um, and experts fear is, is true. The Omicron environment turns out to be vastly more transmissible, um, even if it's not more dangerous. Do you think that strengthened the Biden's administration's hand um, in, in issuing these edicts? Like, w would his vaccine mandates have a better chance of uh, passing uh, judicial muster? Um, in this case, do you think that we'll see less resistance from Republican, uh, less resistance from Republican-led states uh, once it's it's shown that hey, this this new variant is like 
more dangerous than any other variant of the virus that we've seen so far. I don't see a scenario where partisanship uh, takes a backseat. This, I mean, that's not going to happen. So um, the Republicans, r- rightly or wrongly, uh, smell blood with Biden. They think right. they have they have ways to enter. They, they're hopeful in the midterms that they're going to gain seats in Congress. They are hopeful in upcoming elections. They think they 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 have room to run here, and I don't know whether they do or not. Uh, I mean, there's too many, so many variables, but I think that um, COVID is being is being is being used politically on both sides to forward their agendas. That cannot bode well for public health. I'm thinking, you know, if this turns into a political fight, I feel like the actual important messaging of what to do and what the actual dangers are, are, are likely to be exacerbated by political fights, right? Um, do, do you well, think but that- you and I like, I mean, but that's, you know, you and I would probably both agree that you should get a vaccine, right? I mean, we yes. both, so I've been vaccinated. I've got my booster. Uh, I assume you have as well or will soon get your booster. Uh, but um, that's, that's not, well. that I is think, not. I think, yeah, no, and I think it's easy to you know, as well, right? Which, which half think, the state, half the state that I'm living in doesn't agree with that. So. Yeah, which is, which is quite remarkable, as you've noted. You still have states with lower vaccination rates than some countries out there, right? That did not have right, yeah. that the United States had. Right. And so, but I think this is a really important question, uh, issue regarding journalism in general, which is this. Should I assume that everyone who's not getting a vaccine is is a, is a terrible person and an idiot? Uh, no, I don't. I you know I can't. As a reporter, I have to cover them as objectively as I would cover somebody who got vaccinated, and that is a real um, is a is, is something that has been very difficult as a reporter out in the field for everybody uh, in the last since the pandemic hit. You know, if you're wearing a mask and you're talking to somebody who isn't, or you're talking to somebody who's fiercely anti uh, opposed to vaccinations and, but you've been vaccinated, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of um, it's really testing uh, our efforts to be objective as we cover people. And it's um, been a challenge that I think we uh, certainly at the journal, I think we've met it, but it's, it's not been easy. And because you're, you're you're all you're making a choice of whether you're vaccinated or not. And if you're interviewing somebody who's not vaccinated and you're taking precautions regarding that, like for it's it gets very complicated. But I think it's vitally important to not be uh, judgmental of people who are making political decisions that you wouldn't or or medical decisions that you wouldn't agree with. And one last question on this. Do you think that the government has been successful or is successful at identifying why there is such a high rate of vaccine hesitancy and and tackling that head on? Do you you think they've been, I mean, mandates are one way uh, to to get around it, right? Um, But do you think that the government uh, is doing a good job of, uh, I don't, is that like still like a a challenge for them? Because uh, from my understanding, yeah. I mean, you have 50% vaccination rates in my state now, but here's the thing. I think the general perception Again, along political lines, the general perception is well, there's there's a there's a big assumption about people in the Beltway, like journalists in the Beltway in Washington. Their view is, oh well, it's all these Trumpers who don't want to get vaccinated. Well, there are certainly people who supported Donald Trump who do not want to be vaccinated. But there's a lot. I'm in the South. There's there's a lot of African Americans who voted for Biden who are not being vaccinated because they don't trust it, and. 
Uh, I think there have been uh, efforts to make headway in that area, you know, among the African-American community, particularly in the rural parts of the states, uh, states across the South. Have they been successful? Moderately, but we're still looking at 50 percent. So I don't know what uh, I don't think that would be accurate. If I remember correctly, uh, President Biden was hoping uh, by the 4th of July to be at 70 percent vaccination for the country or something. Yeah nationwide so i don't know what the national average is now but if you have places that are below 50 percent that's that's uh that's that's not obviously not a target that they're you know not thrilled about those results uh but there are lots of different groups for various reasons that are reluctant um um, certainly that's that can take place in the united states but there are whole swaths of the world where uh, obtaining a vaccine is is still a very difficult thing to do so uh if people can't don't even have the chance to be vaccinated the chance for variants to develop like they did and just just did in south africa or if it did come from south africa we don't even know that then that's just going to keep happening right I think I read somewhere that the country that detected the Omicron variant, South Africa, had a rate of vaccination of only 25% of its entire population, and that they've actually had to turn away vaccines because of the persistent rate of vaccine hesitancy in the country. Um, Well, my wishes, of course, are this Omicron variant turns out to be a meek one, (laughs) hopefully one that shows regard for human life, not that viruses ever do. Um, yeah, I don't think viruses do that. <laughs> yeah. uh, and just for, for, for the collective mental health of, of the world and certainly the economic health of everyone, um, I hope that we do not, we are not forced into the kind of lockdown situations we were in. Well, I think you're going to see, you're starting to see in the United States, certainly political pushback to, to, toward those events. I think you're seeing political pushback uh, in Europe. Georgia w- uh, was one of the first states to open up some businesses in May of 2020, I think it was. Time is sort of blurring. But I went out and covered, um, you know, as the, he, the, the governor here allowed businesses that were, you know, barbershops and some other places to start opening with with safety measures. And um, I drove around Metro Atlanta uh, reporting on that. And I went to what would be considered the poorer sections of the city uh, where that were predominantly African-American and uh, saw businesses where people were lined up because they wanted to get a haircut. They wanted to get out of their house. And I talked to barbers and um, hairdressers and they were really thankful because they, that they were allowed to, to reopen because otherwise they have no income. I mean, it was a really a desperate situation for small business owners in poorer parts of this city it's a very complicated economic question and political and ethical and religious question about whether people are vaccinated or how they're vaccinated or who chooses not to be vaccinated, how, what business opens, what business shuts. You know, in a lot of the wealthier parts of Atlanta, businesses were all closed because their customers would demand it, you know. But in the poorer sections of the city, businesses were opening because the business owners had to, they didn't have any, you know, safety net to sit back for a while. So, Cam, I want to talk to you about the 
Ahmad Arbery trial. So the verdict for the from the jury in the Ahmad Arbery trial came after a relatively short deliberation time. The three men who were accused, Travis McMichael, his father, Gregory McMichael, and their neighbor, William Bryan Jr., also known as Roddy, were found guilty of the murder of Mr. Arbery, whom they confronted and fatally shot while he was out running in the neighborhood. The case garnered national attention after a video of the shooting was leaked to the news media by one of the defendants and went viral and became seen as the latest example of racially motivated killings that have rocked the nation. Uh, Travis uh, McMichael, who took the stand in his own defense, was found guilty of all charges, the most serious of which was malice murder. The men also faced separate federal hate crime charges, with the trial for that case set to begin in February of 2022. Now, Cam, you have reported extensively on this case. Can you briefly walk us through the prosecutor's argument and how she swayed the jury to a guilty verdict? A lot of the people believe that this was a racially inspired murder due to the fact that Arbery is a black man, his pursuers were white men, and some of the language used, um, including a racial epithet that was uttered uh, by his shooter, uh, but the prosecutor, Linda Dunikoski, I think her name is, seemed to shy yeah. from explicitly using that line of argument to the majority white jury. And she was successful, seemingly successful. What, what can you tell us about the case and what went on um, in, in the courtroom during the trial? Well, I think uh, I think it's accurate to say that, I mean, this was a racially charged case. No question. Three white men uh, pursuing a black man in the south, in the rural south with pickup trucks and then uh, one man shooting uh, him to death and he's unarmed of course and he's shooting him to death with a shotgun um you know it was obviously uh there were there were racial overtones explicitly throughout this case uh that being said the argument the prosecutor's arguments were uh, relatively devoid of of race in the in i mean the it was obvious that three white guys had shot a black guy to death their her arguments were that any um, that they any any claims that the white men made regarding citizens they were using you know making a lawful citizen's arrest or that it was uh, self defense because he had lunged at the man with the shotgun uh, were were had no merit and her arguments were very legally bound by the definitions of citizen's arrest and self defense. And she really tore at those defenses that the uh, the, the defendants tried to make, and um, and obviously was very persuasive. I don't know, uh, the, you know, I don't know what the jury if if it took a lot of persuasion or a little bit of persuasion. The the jury was only in there really for two half days, and they came back with um, guilty guilty verdicts all around. Uh, Travis McMichael, you said, uh, was convicted of malice murder, but he was also convicted of felony murder and both of those you know both those uh carry very lengthy sentences i'd say all three men are probably looking at life in prison right uh, I, I wanted to actually ask you also about another aspect of the case so there are, there have also been questions about the handling of the case prior to it garnering national attention right before we, we ever saw the viral video one of the prior prosecutors assigned to the case uh former district attorney jackie johnson is currently facing charges of obstruction of justice and violating the oath of office for refusing to pursue charges against the mcmichaels um and subsequent reporting in the new york times also revealed that the police department that investigated the case has been subject to numerous accusations of covering up misconduct and evidence tampering do you do you think that the Ahmad Arbery trial was just was the one that 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 gained attention amongst the people Gregory McMichael the father of the defendant who was also charged um, and and convicted of felony murder used to be a police officer and he used to work at the district attorney's office how unusual is it that a prosecutor in Georgia 
right? A district attorney refuses. Well, this, to I mean, yeah, I mean, no, I mean, like this. you know, that goes back to, you know, the era of Jim Crow. I mean, we just don't know, but I'll tell you this, she's facing, um, she's been indicted. And if she's convicted, that's going to raise a lot of questions about every case that her office handled. Uh, and that's all going to have to be reviewed. And I think anybody, anybody sitting in jail, certainly, and certainly an African-American sitting in jail as a result of a conviction stemming from her, her office's prosecution is going to, should talk to their lawyer, because um, that will all be subject to review, I would think. But we'll have, it, it's a real can of worms. Now, as for um, her guilt or, you know, or, or innocence regarding that, or whether she just made a mistake, I mean, that's all going to be decided in court. But the issue certainly has awakened in this part of Georgia, which is the coastal south of Savannah, this sort of coastal region. It's really awakened a, 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 a sense of looking at the, at the issue of race and how it plays out in terms of criminal justice. You just had uh, someone who was very pivotal in, in um, an African-American man who was very pivotal in, in that indictment against the prosecutor is, was just elected mayor of Brunswick. Uh, you know, the, this is, this is a potentially a new era for that section of, of, of the South. Right. And, and you're absolutely right that there were like there were even more electoral uh, consequences uh, after that. I think she the district attorney lost her reelection bid right before her indictment uh, yeah. in the case. Yeah. People certainly responded quickly. Um, I also wanted to mention, you know, some background here for, for our listeners. This decision does not come in a vacuum, um, if only because of the way national news media have reported on it, right? This also comes on the heels of two other prominent decisions, right? Court decisions, the acquittal of Kyle Wittenhouse in the shooting of three protesters in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and the guilty verdict handed down for the organizers of the infamous Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, which led to the death of one woman. Um, The organizers were found liable um, to pay $25 million in damages, but were acquitted on federal conspiracy charges after the jury deadlock. I bring this up because um, you wrote a book on the Red Summer racial riots of 1919 that were driven by white supremacists. Do you see a repeating trend here? I know this is a little bit asking you to read a crystal ball. Why or why not? Um, No, I've been asked that a lot. I mean, I think think, um, a repeating, people say, say that a lot like oh is is it just a repeat i think that's maybe overly simplistic i think a better way to look at it is, is an echo um you know the 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 racial violence of 1919 which spread across the country you know that that had a real deep impact on white and black americans for generations and uh set patterns of segregation in urban areas like chicago and new york etc and it also um shaped how people were policed and how and african-american community the african-american community's relationship to police and i think that is still echoing to this day and certainly we're seeing that um in all these cases and i think the george floyd the response to george floyd had been building for a long long time and i think the um the arbery case is an is part of that. And I think the, the prime, I mean, there were people celebrating, I was at the courthouse in Brunswick when, the, when the verdict was handed down and there were people celebrating, but honestly, the main emotion uh, from the people there and in the town was just relief that there was, 
because uh, there was a real trepidation that there would be uh, chaos if uh, something along the lines of Minnesota, there weren't guilty verdicts here. Right. You know, um, on the last episode of the podcast, I had a friend of mine, a black friend of mine, um, and we, we talked a little bit about the Rittenhouse case. And he said he said this phrase, he said, you know, I'm disappointed, but not surprised. And I asked him, why are you not surprised? And he said, you know, even perhaps subconsciously, he has formed this opinion that justice is rarely meted out when it comes to white defendants in racially motivated cases, right? Or, or when it comes to white defendants in general, he said, um, and this line stuck with me, he said that black defendants usually meet their justice or their judgment on the street. People like right, Kyle Rittenhouse, if it was like, you know, there, there are all sorts of speculation that if it was a black man, he would have likely been shot on the spot for hoisting a gun and shooting people at a protest um, before he's ever like, you know, brought into the court of law. Um, and there were talks about Ahmad Arbery, right? Like even had the citizen's arrest been, and it's not, uh, I think as has been proven in the case, even ha- had it been valid, that is not, you know, burglaring or trespassing are not crimes that carry capital punishment, right? So I think there's a sense of, of despondence for people, even, you know, my friend who's born well <laughs> towards the end of the of the 20th century, who feels like justice has not moved in the United States, uh, you know, since the Jim Crow era. I guess I, yeah, I mean, to that extent, um, I agree and I disagree. And the, and the reason I, di- the one part I disagree with is, you know, so part of studying this this era, 1919, there were all these amazing uh, African-American leaders who came together. James Walden Johnson is one of them. Uh, you know, W.E. Du Bois, other people right. working for the NAACP and other organizations really uh, risked their lives and it sort of spent all the energy they had to really make changes in America. And it was certainly... They didn't solve every problem or even come close, but they began a process, I think. And so to me, I developed a real uh, admiration for, for, for those Americans uh, who happened to be black, who did, who did all this great work, uh, in my mind, for the Constitution, for, for, for Americans, right? For everybody, for us today. We have massive legacies that we still have to deal with. But it's a lot better than it was because I can tell you this: if, if Ahmad Arbery had been had been shot to death in 1919, it wouldn't. It may not even have made the newspapers. You know, I mean, that just would have happened and moved on. Well, that was uh, almost and, the case too, right? We were talking about how the case was almost not indicted had it not been right. for the defendant himself. I think I think it was Gregory McMichael who thought it would help his case to leak the video that clearly backfired. Yeah. Um, and I yeah. think it's it's those cases that frustrate people and make them think that you know we've moved so far. We have actual documented video evidence, the kind of which civil rights leaders would have you know loved to have uh, to to bolster their case for for racial equality but things have not changed at the pace they're supposed to um 11 a jury of 11 white people and one black person in the heart of the deep south i mean you walk out of that courthouse and there's spanish moss hanging from the trees there's a confederate monument not that far away a couple couple blocks over um they spent you know what 10 hours uh, convicting three white men for the rest of their lives. They're gone. They're going to prison. So that to me uh, bodes uh, that that when the facts are presented and the jury system goes to work, that that's the result. And um, that that's, so that, that 
is to me somewhat hopeful that the system works. No, there is certainly cause for hope. Um, and I'm hoping that these kind of crimes don't happen to begin with. I think that's, that's the ultimate goal here. Um, so there is one, you know, I've lived in Atlanta, which is really kind of a, not really a Southern, Southern city, but uh, for since 2003. And there is a lot, and I grew up in the North. I would say that there is a, people in the Northeast and the Midwest have this view of the South uh, that, you know, that's where the racists live. That's where racism, wow, there's a lot of racism down there. I think there are racists everywhere. <laughs> and I was just going to say, uh, 1919 demonstrated that to me, certainly. I mean, that was a, that was not, uh, there were horrible events that took place in the South, certainly. Uh, but uh, there were race riots in Chicago and Omaha, Nebraska. And, you know, I mean, it was all over the place. So, and, and to this notion that, um, you know, that although racists in the South, you know, there's all this racism in the South is really missing uh, the point as George Floyd demonstrated, right? I mean, he was killed in Minneapolis. So um, there are, there are issues of race that every, that this entire country has to wrestle with and they're complicated. Every, every case is different. Every case has different, a different set of facts. Um, Every there, it's all very, very complicated, but I think America needs to renew its efforts to try to grapple with how to resolve this. So moving on to another happy, yet no less contentious topic. Um, So New York State has one of the toughest gun control laws in the United States. This is widely known, I think. But that is currently under jeopardy due to a Supreme Court case brought by the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association challenging New York's Sullivan Act of 1911, which prohibits people from obtaining a concealed carry license unless they, and I'm quoting from the statute here, demonstrate a special need for self-protection distinguishable from that of the general community or of persons engaged in the same profession. That's legalese for you must show a reason um, to be granted uh, the concealed carry license. Questioning from the justices during the oral argument suggested that the conservative majority in the court was likely to see the law as an infringement on the Second Amendment rights of citizens and therefore strike it down or limit its scope significantly. This is happening, of course, against the uh, the backdrop of a wider debate on gun control, as the results from a recent Gallup poll showed that support for gun control measures is at its lowest point since at least 2014. This is despite a string of mass shootings and gun violence that have swept the country in the last couple of years, including a school shooting in Michigan that happened just this week where three students were killed and eight others were injured. Cam, you are currently working on a book called American Gun, How a Cold War Invention Became Our Nation's Most Divisive Weapon. What can you tell me about the current Supreme Court case and how gun control is viewed in the country right now? Well, um, that's a that's a big question. But like all of, like every issue in our country right now, there's a huge political chasm between the right and the left on how what's what's the best way to deal with the issue. Uh, I think gun control is interesting because it's the it's one of the issues that that there you can't you can't just go off in your corner and have your opinion. I mean, we have to figure out how we're going to make the uh, make this country safer regarding guns. But at the same time, ex- uh, accept the reality the, uh, uh, that, that there is a Second Amendment that secures the rights of citizens to have guns. And what kinds of guns they have, how those guns are dealt with varies dramatically uh, state by state. So New York State, um, you know, concealed carry, uh, uh, 
having a gun license, like it's a much more laborious process than, for example, down in the South. I mean, it's much easier to get a gun here and get a concealed carry permit and open carry permit and, you know, not get or, you know, some, some states they're pushing for n- no permit required. Um, so there are, there is definitely a uh, big, big divide in this country regarding gun control. And it's not surprisingly ending up in our court system. And there's a lot of expectation that the Supreme Court, which uh, people are viewing as more conservative, will start um, strengthening Second Amendment rights. Now, how that's going to manifest in this New York case, I don't know. But uh, but there are states uh, where concealed carry is not a, is is as easy as walking in and filling out a piece of paper. And why do you think that gun control? like support for gun control has fallen um i think that's pretty obvious that that's that's covid and and um all the social unrest following george floyd's death last summer there were you know many many black lives matter protests that were utterly peaceful but there were some that uh or, or or people who were attached to some of those protests who were not peaceful there were businesses destroyed etc and as a result um, gun sales soared um, as a result, uh, and it's been documented by our news organization and others that uh, policing has dropped off in some major cities. So we've seen homicide rates skyrocket uh, after years and years of decline. Uh, so people who are frightened about a rise in violent crime are going to buy guns, and that's happening in record numbers. If you just bought a gun, you're not going to be for gun control <laughs> and, oh. and guns. Yeah. I mean, gun sales are through the roof. Violent crime is through the roof. I'm li- here in Atlanta. That was just uh, we just had a mayoral election. That was uh, the issue of the campaign was what are you going to do about violent crime? You know, going back to the Supreme court case, I listened to some of the oral arguments. I found some time and what it seemed to me is like while the conservative justices seemed wholly unconvinced of the constitutionality of the law as it stands, they were also somewhat wary of the security implications of increased accessibility to guns, right? This goes back to what you were just saying about uh, rising crime, right? I, I think they mentioned a scenario where someone was carrying a weapon around a high density area in New York City, like Times Square. So I'm going to ask you to to uh, help me out here. Well, what are the possible options? I mean, we don't know for sure what the ruling is going to be until like late next summer, most likely. But what do you think? How do you think like just based on what the justices beliefs are, the makeup of the court right now? What are what are the most likely rulings? Um, do you think who, they're going to limit it? Yeah, I mean, who knows? I mean, I, I think I, I, have, I would have no idea. But I know that there are there is a very strong gun movement uh and it's not the nra because the nra is kind of in trouble these days right. but you know states different states including new york state there are uh gun owners organizations that are um very very uh firmly convinced that it is an american citizen's right to carry uh any weapon barring a fully automatic uh machine gun so any semi-automatic rifle on down uh, whenever and wherever they want, because that's their right under the Constitution. And they are pushing that argument. And certainly there it has been this sort of hybrid system in our country where 
states that have uh, where gun control is more accepted. There have been regulations on guns. I mean, I see it very similar to the abortion issue. So in the South here, you know, we have states like Mississippi, which is there's a there's a Supreme Court case they're dealing with right now. Uh, you know, they have one one abortion clinic because that's the only one that could really continue uh, in the state because there's a whole host of regulations that they've created. You know, they've had to accept because of the of the of the Supreme Court Roe v. Wade, they had to accept that there is uh, there they have to allow abortions, but they can put a whole host of restrictions on it. Uh, then up in northern states where, uh, you know, abortion is much more accepted at the same time, they have severe restrictions on gun control. So they do pass all kinds of legislation regarding registering a gun, when you can have a gun, what kind of gun. In the South, getting a gun is pretty pretty easy to do uh, as long as you haven't committed a felony. But would so it it's, upset the balance in a way, right? So in, in, in the abortion case, just use the analogy you used. If the Supreme Court, let's say, strikes Roe v. Wade, which is, you know, I think the, the pro-choices movement's worst case scenario, that is more than likely to happen. You know, states will be free to come up with their own abortion well, restrictions uh, because uh, it's set in a minimum. Gun right, laws. but walk, walk through that. I mean, walk through that. Because, I mean, I think people, it's in the interests of, of the, of the both, on uh, all of these issues, on every issue, it's in the interests of both political sides to uh, scream chicken little as loudly as they can, right? right. Uh, exactly. And they do. Prior to Roe v. Wade, states in the North allowed abortions and um, Southern states did not. Today, with Roe v. Wade, more liberal states, I mean, it, the South is changing, but there are, you know, there, there are fewer abortion clinics in the South than there are up in the Northern states. And if Roe v. Wade was somehow overturned, that's kind of what it would look like afterward. And I think that um, gun control is kind of the same way. It would be, you know, if, if, if somehow this ruling was passed in New York, legislators would walk into, their, you know, into Albany, uh, into the Capitol and try to figure out some other way to restrict uh, or limit or regulate uh, gun ownership. In, in that state, and they would just keep going at it. These bat these cultural battles take a long, long, long time, <laughs> and they don't. And there isn't a uh, a Waterloo necessarily at the end of it where it's over. I mean, I've been writing about both those issues. It okay. seems like for the, my whole life. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I don't, and I expect to write it till I till I drop. How do you ensure that the crime rates that are rising? Are, are not exacerbated by laxening gun laws. I think those are the security questions that um, at least New York has, has tried to raise and, you know, the, the, a bunch of other supporting um, states. Well, I mean, the, the, you know, to the, the counter argument, yeah, I yeah. mean, the counter argument would be the people who are, who are using guns uh, to commit crimes are criminals. So they don't have, you know, but you're um, not a criminal until you are. Right. Yeah, I mean, you right. can purchase a gun legally and then commit your first crime. And I think um, what was it? The statistic cited was that most guns in New York City are required illegally, but they right. That's are what I was legally say. Exactly. in other states. Right. But if you have the ability to source locally, then you won't need to go to Georgia right, or Tennessee to buy a gun. You can do it right in your home turf, of course, pending any legislation that Albany comes up with. That restricts um, your ability, similar to, to what Southern states are. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, this is a this has led to a cottage industry uh, of 
criminologists and professors wrangling over these issues? You know, what is 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 higher gun ownerships make make a community safer, or does it make it more dangerous? Uh, and they go back and forth and debate. Um, and frankly, um, I've read a lot of these studies. Uh, and it, it's very much a, a selective. And I think the truth is no one really knows. I think there's a broad social phenomena going that had been going on, which was that gun ownership was dropping in this country. Uh, hunting is dropping as a, as a pastime in this country that at least stabilized with COVID and the social unrest afterward. Gun ownership, gun sales went up. But right for a long time, we've had gun sales to a shrinking population. So they're buying more and more guns, but there's less and less people who are into it. And that is a phenomenon that I don't think any of these any of these legal decisions aren't going to affect that trend overall. And so over time, most voters are going to be people who aren't really interested in owning a gun. And that's going to be um then then you might see laws that will start to change so speaking about laws in congress and legislatures there has been some new developments in the congressional investigation on the january 6th riots at the capitol building in washington dc so this week the committee charged with conducting the investigation spent four hours interviewing the georgia secretary of state brett raffensperger Raffensperger has claimed that then has claimed that then President Donald Trump and his aides tried to unduly pressure him to change the results of last year's presidential elections in Georgia, which Biden won. During a phone call in January, the audio of which was released by the media, Trump asked Raffensperger to find enough votes for him to flip the results in the state. In a statement to CNN, Raffensperger, who's a Republican, said that he spoke to the committee to impress upon them how stolen election claims damage our democracy, whether in 2016, 2018, or 2020. In a recent book, Raffensperger said he felt that Trump was threatening him when he made the call. The January 6th riots were motivated in part by the widespread, yet baseless, belief among President Trump's supporters that the election was stolen from the former president and that the results are suspect. So, Cam, this is your neck of the woods. What do we know and what did we learn about what's happening with January 6th investigations in Georgia? Aside from the fact that it's probably a good idea to hit record when the president of the United States calls and asks for a favor off the books. Yeah, the um, well, I mean, this has uh, roiled uh, politics down here for months. Um, Trump was the first Republican presidential candidate to lose Georgia since 1992. Uh, and. So it was a pretty amazing loss. It would not have, if he had won Georgia, he still would have lost the presidency, but uh, it was a very stinging loss for him. He uh, lashed out very severely at Brian Kemp, who's the governor, and at Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who uh, was a very ardent Trump supporter. (laughs) Uh, So it was a very, you know, and he spent a, uh, uh, former President Trump spent a lot of time attacking those two political figures who are leading Republican political figures in the state of Georgia. So it's just been a very strange uh, period in which Secretary of State Raffensperger has spoken out about his views, but also they've been very couched and Governor Kemp has been very reluctant to say anything negative about former President Trump, because he doesn't want to alienate a portion of the Republican base. 
and there's a real question as to whether that's going to play a key role in uh, in the governor's race next year when he has to face Stacey Abrams, who uh, and he may face a primary challenger. You also have a situation where uh, one of the Senate candidates, the Democratic Senate candidates that won down here, Raphael Warnock, uh, is going to be up for re-election because he was filling out a term. That's crucial for the country because they now control the um, uh, the Democrats now control the Senate. And so keeping that post is key. And January 6th uh, really, really um, roiled things up even further. I was covering that with several colleagues that day, the election here. We had the January 5th uh, primary in which the two Democrats defeated two sitting Republicans in Georgia, which was astounding, to take control of the Senate. So we were very busy uh, reporting that story out. Uh, and I remember um, talking constantly with my colleagues. And one of my colleagues said, I think you better turn on your TV. On Je- This was January 6th. And I said, you know, I'm too busy working on this story. He said, I don't think we're the biggest story of the day <laughs> anymore. Uh, and I turned on the TV and there was people, people pouring into, uh, into the Capitol. So, um, but all of it, many, many of the people arrested or several of the people arrested have come from Georgia. Uh, there is, have been right-wing extremist groups in the mountains of Georgia who have been uh, arrested. Marjorie Taylor Greene is from, is a sitting congresswoman from Georgia. Politics are really um, up in the air here. So what what do you think Trump's calculus is here? If he, you know, there, there's a midterm election coming up where not one, but two vital seats are for grabs, the governor's mansion in Georgia and a Senate seat, a United States Senate seat. Well, what is Trump's calculus here by undermining Republicans' best chances against Democrats? Abrams is going to be bringing in tons of money. Um Trump has obviously, he's obviously opposed politically to Stacey Abrams, but he has said kind things about her uh, repeatedly in public statements um, and, and disparaged the sitting governor, who's a Republican, numerous, numerous, numerous times. So um, I don't know about uh, the president's calculus or not. I mean, I, anyone trying to figure that, if anyone has the key to that, uh, they, 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 that would be pretty amazing. That being said, I think the the calculus is for Republicans, what is the reach, the continued political reach of a Donald Trump? So is he able to, are politicians going to, Republican politicians going forward, going to be able to operate without his strong support or without his involvement even? Uh, and I think, um, Many Republicans were excited about what happened in Virginia, where the Republican gubernatorial candidate won in what was considered a blue state. Um, and there, and he certainly had said nice things about Trump, but isn't necessarily a hundred percent in the Trump camp. So there's questions. Everyone's everyone's was was very the Republican Party, which dominates the state of Georgia, was rattled by what happened last year. Just absolutely turned upside down. Uh, they suffered three massive defeats. They lost the presidential contest and then two Senate seats. And that being said, they are trying to sort of repair themselves and figure out how to uh, win again. 
And this is going to be a massive test of that. At the same time, Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock and the Democrats are coming on strong and have tons of money and tons of money pouring in from out of state. And they will be working very hard on voter registration, et cetera. Uh, the demographic realities are favor the Democrats because Atlanta, Metro Atlanta is booming and it's drawing people from states who are uh, up north and uh, the Midwest and in the Northeast that are br- the people are bringing their politics here. Um, you know, I was talking to a friend the other day and, you know, he said, he's like, oh, I don't know what, what, what Trump is doing. You know, he's ruining his own party's chances. And I said, I think it's a question of how vindictive he's willing to be. Part of me feels that, you know, if, if you believe in the general theory that Trump is this master chess player of politics and he's this shrewd politician who's actually pretty cynical and pretty good at self-preservation um, and, you know, certainly running elections, except for the last one, you know, part of me feels that he feels that by withholding his support for Brian Kemp and having Republicans lose such a vital state that's been Republican, as you pointed out, for quite a while, you know, they've had unified control of government for decades now. Still, do. Then it yeah. bolsters his own chances at running for re-election in 2024. Um, and it makes, you know, if, if he's successful in, you know, withholding his, I don't know, endorsement from Ryan Kemp or whoever the uh, Republicans put up for um, the senatorial seat that Raphael Warnock is seeking to hold, you know, it, it will prove that, you know, he, one, has a tenacious, ho- tenacious uh, hold on the Republican Party, but two, it will make them much more likely to fall in line and nominate someone who's even more effusive in his praise for Trump's, uh, for Trump in, in the hope that they will regain Georgia. Right. That's, that's part of my, that's my cynical take on it. I don't know if, if Trump is motivated by the same motivations, if this is just simple pettiness on his part, maybe he doesn't like, like Brian Kemp as a person. He feels like, you know, uh, uh I think the Republicans the down here. Thing. Yeah. I mean, the, the Republicans down here, Mr. Raffensperger and Mr. Kemp, uh, among them, I think have been baffled by uh, President Trump's statements about them when he was president and and now afterward. And, uh, but, you know, I think, I think um, what you described was, was very much a long game, like a long-term view. And my, uh, maybe I'm going to out cynical you, but I mean, my coverage of politics for decades now across the country in various places, Democrat dominated, Republican dominated, is that uh, there's not really very often a long game being played. It's just sort of circum, you know, responding to, to various circumstances. You know, there's the, the, the notion that there's, you know, this conniving masterminds running things um, is just, uh, it's sad, not the case. You know, it's it's very much a response to immediate concerns. Speaking of immediate concerns, so currently there is a fight in Congress, the kind that takes place on Twitter and in the floor and halls of Congress itself. GOP House member Lauren Boebert is currently embroiled in a fight with Democratic Congresswoman Elhan Omar after making some remarks that suggested that Congressman Omar might be a threat to others that is to say a suicide bomber, due to her religion, Islam. The comments were widely criticized as bigoted and Islamophobic and sparked a debate about the wider treatment of Muslims in the United States. Coincidentally, the Supreme Court is currently considering a case that has been making its way through the judicial system for more than a decade. Those brought by Muslim plaintiffs in Southern California after they were surveilled and through the use of an informant uh, unsuccessfully goaded into committing acts of violence by the FBI, 
you wrote a piece for the journal about the lives of Muslim, American Muslims post 9-11, and you covered the Muslim population in Waterloo, Iowa, and the challenges they still face with anti-Muslim sentiment in America. What are some of the things you heard from the people you interviewed, and how has life been like for Muslims? I have to say, going to Waterloo was very interesting. Waterloo, Iowa, middle of, of, uh, of the heart of America, a uh, you know, city that was sort of industrial, but then also had basically farmland around it. And um, Muslim refugees, primarily Bosnians, initially showed up there in the 90s. Uh, but since then, you have all kinds of Muslims showing up in larger numbers. There's a university near there where people are attending and um, immigrants and refugees are, are coming. As you know, we just took a bunch of uh, Afghan refugees. And the, what I found in the story is that there is still... Um, incidents. This particular mosque that I focused on in the story had had incidents where people were coming up and, and saying uh, slurs against the mosque. And one of them wrote Trump uh, at one point on the, on the side of the mosque. But on the whole, um, Islam is just becoming part of the normal part of America now. I mean, we have, um, it's much more accepted than it was prior to 9-11 and after 9-11. And we are seeing um, Islamic holidays incorporated into school calendars. Um, mosques are popping up in places as remote as, as Waterloo, Iowa, where they have um, they actually have three mosques, uh, different mosques in that city. So it is becoming part of the fabric, which is certainly, it's it's had a bumpier ride than other immigrant uh, religious groups in the past, but all of them have faced uh, initial prejudice. But over time, they're incorporated. You know, I mean, we had uh, refugees, and we had a lot of Sudanese refugees prior to 9-11 here, um, uh, people from what is today South Sudan. And uh, they were, um, they are Christian primarily down there. Uh, and yet they were attacked on 9-11 because some of them were beaten um, because people thought that they were somehow involved. And I think similar things happened to people of the Sikh faith, right? Yeah, the Sikh faith in Wisconsin, there was a terrorist attack because they wore turbans. Yeah, I mean, so there's, you know, um, but I do think that, you know, I I interviewed people who were selling hijabs and selling women, you know, uh, garb for women, and they're starting businesses, and those businesses are succeeding. There are you know, halal meats are being sold. Uh, there are whole businesses thriving on that now. And I think it's just becoming part of, um, again, the road to entrance was rocky and there is, of course, still prejudice, but it's a vastly different situation than we had uh, 20 years ago. You know, um, when when I heard, when I first saw coverage of, of the tiff that's going on between Congresswoman Boebert and Congresswoman Omar, um, one of the things that I saw widely discussed, especially like on Twitter between journalists who, who've covered um, Representative Omar, of course, she's a very prominent national uh, figure as a member of the so-called Progressive Caucus um, and so-called Squad, um, was that she had made controversial comments that uh, a lot of people labeled as anti-Semitic earlier in her career. Um, she has publicly, of course, apologized to them. Um, she was, um, you know, verbally censured by, by members of her own party and chastised. Some of the critiques I, I saw of House leadership nowadays, especially in action from the House Republican leadership, 
was that there wasn't the same kind of condemnation leveled at Boebert, right? Um, and I think this is not not surprising considering recent events. I mean, there was a Republican congressman who tweeted, I think, a video of him murdering one of his uh, Democratic colleagues, um, and he was censured and removed from committee assignments, but that was almost done on an entirely bar- partisan pa- basis. Um, and, you know, the the debate kind of like, you know, was was based on this premise that Islamophobia, unlike other forms of discrimination, like racism, like anti-Semitism, which all still exist, is much more widely accepted in, in, in our general parlance um, and in the public sphere. Um, and so people are more overt with it, while, you know, racists and anti-Semites have learned to be somewhat subtle. Well, I mean, I think I think what you're describing is a complicated, it's a very complicated, I guess I'm going to say there is, uh, it, I'm a reporter in outside of the Beltway. I'm a reporter in the in the in the Atlanta in Atlanta, and I drive around the South. And sometimes I go to the Midwest, and you know, I mean, I I'm out among Americans. And I would argue people all, in New York City are also Americans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, New York City. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But I mean, I think there is a uh, there is a chattering class, a cable television, Twitter class of 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 people who like to comment and and then there's americans out there who are really dealing with this and there is prejudice uh, against there are people who don't understand the basic uh tenets of islam or there are people who um have heard and you know they've seen violence uh committed by isis and things like that and and that has influenced their own that's their only understanding of islam so they're definitely um there's definitely lots of things to work on. However, um, you know, if you have Muslim people, for example, moving into your neighborhood and they live next door to you and their kids go to your school uh, over time, that's who you, 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 you know, and you, and they invite you over for a Muslim holiday and you invite them over for uh, a, a Christian holiday and you exchange food. I I'm thinking of the, the imam of, of the mosque I interviewed in Waterloo, he said, my neighbor is a Christian. He brings me cucumbers and tomatoes that he grows in his garden. He mows my lawn when I can't do it. I'm not trying to convert him, but I bring, and I bring him food. And when there's holidays, when we make my wife bakes special traditional get dishes, I bring it over, you know, and that's to me is more of the story of Islam in America. And I think Islam is going to have to, adapt as well because i think there are issues uh there are many americans who have expressed concern about islam's view toward women and where women stand and all that's got to be sorted out because uh um and i but i i don't want to sound like a pollyanna but i think it, it will be sorted out i think americans are um uh, you know, I'm, again, away from the chattering cable television yap fest, uh, Americans are trying to figure stuff out. And if uh, you have a nice neighbor who happens to be a Muslim, that goes a lot farther than um, than what somebody, you know, some snarky thing someone said on Twitter or, you know, co- Congress people yelling at each other. 
Right. Um, I do have one last question for you, but I yeah. do want to like express that I am personally disappointed in you suggesting that Twitter is not an accurate reflection of real life. And real opinion. Right, right. As an avid tweeter myself, I take great offense at that. Um, and, and I think yeah. and I think you bring up like an important point, right? As Muslims in the United States are different from Muslims in Europe, right? All European countries, they're different from Muslims in the Middle East, from Muslims in Africa, and from Muslims in Southeast Asian countries, right? Everybody practices the religion differently um, and molds into like whatever traditions are born into their own country. Well, okay, but wait, wait, just interject. So interesting point in Waterloo. So, you know, I was there on Friday and the people were lining up for prayer and there were people from Malaysia, people from uh, Dubai, people from, you know, Egypt, you know, they're all there and they all bring Bosnians. They all bring different traditions, right? So um, slightly different traditions. There's the basic core tenets of Islam, but then there's different traditions. And they, and certainly Bosnian, like Bosnian women don't adhere to some of the restrictions regarding dress that someone from Pakistan would adhere to, right? Or so all that's being sorted out in the mosque, let alone out in public, right? Yeah. And, and like every American um, generation ever, uh, when you come to this country, uh, you, wherever country you came from, you know, you're, you bring all your memories and your values and the language skills and all that, and your children don't, you know, and that's, I have friends who are Nepali, who are devout Hindus, and they are, you know, I don't, and and they speak Nepali fluently, and I don't know that their kids are going to speak Nepali, and I don't know what their religious faith is going to be. You know, I mean, I think there this is literally a melting pot for, and that has positives and and some negatives. But that's what America is, and I think or Islam, rather what it aspires to be. Hopefully, we're on the way. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think it will be. I think Islam has had a rougher road for a whole host of political reasons, and and um historical realities but the america i grew up in in the in in the america that my children are growing up in regarding islam regarding people of different faiths people of different sexual orientations people of different backgrounds is astounding it's a it's been an amazing transformation and i think that it's ultimately a positive thing i think we have a lot of rough rides ahead of us Cam, thank you so much for joining me. Where can my listeners find you? Uh, the Wall Street Journal. I work there regularly, often, a lot. Um, and Hopefully for I'm a time on, to come. I, and I'm on Twitter, uh, whether even though I just disparaged it. And um, uh, Cam McWhorter. And um, yeah, that's, I, I've, I, I, as you mentioned briefly, I wrote a book called Red Summer about uh, race riots that erupted across the country in 1919. So uh, given a lot of talks about that. And I'm working on a book with a colleague about the history of the AR-15 rifle. Sounds like a timely book. Cam, thank you so much for joining the show. We can't wait to have you back. Yeah, great talking to you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Breaking the Net. We will be back next week with more breaking news. I'm your host, Mehdi Mahal, and I will see you next time.